This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to the book of Revelation, chapter 20. Revelation, chapter 20. And if you would, join me in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come into your presence before your throne this evening. Thank you that you are pleased to answer our prayers. You are pleased and overjoyed to meet our petitions. And we ask tonight for wisdom. We ask for guidance. We ask for the presence of your spirit, that as we look at your word, it may be more than just filling our heads with information or reminding ourselves of things we've heard before, but that we would truly come face to face once again with you and be changed because of it. We ask this in your name. Amen. The birth of a baby is always an exciting event. Uh, My wife and I got to experience that joy, that excitement, uh, just a few months ago. But though some may find it hard to admit this, uh, my birth and your birth, And yes, even the births of our wonderful children are probably not important historic events. There are, however, some babies that have been remembered by history. This past Monday marks exactly 600 years since the birth of a little boy named Henry. Henry was named for his father, Henry, and he was the first child of Henry and his wife, Catherine. They were, no doubt, excited that he was a boy who would be able to carry on the family name. But there was rejoicing at his birth for another reason. See, Henry's father, Henry, was the highly celebrated warrior king of England, Henry V. And it was good for the kingdom that Henry V had a little baby boy, because in August of 1422... Henry's father, Henry, died. As a result of the strains of battle and disease, leaving his only son, nine-month-old Henry VI, to take the throne of England. Talk about a celebrated baby, crowned at nine months old. Though we might laugh at the idea of a baby on the throne of a kingdom, and of course we realize that at nine months he was not really making the decisions. His birth truly was an historic event. The nation rejoiced at the birth of a future king. This time of year, of course, we celebrate another birth that was certainly a key historical event. And though the reasons Jesus' birth are so significant, uh, is so significant, are many, One of the reasons is reminiscent of little baby Henry. We find that reason in the question that some scholars from the East asked as they entered Jerusalem after his birth. The question on their lips was this, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the East and are come to worship him. Because just like Henry VI, Jesus was born destined to be king. 
But though the wise men were not wrong, they didn't quite get it completely right. In Luke chapter 1, before Jesus' birth, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary to announce that she is expecting Jesus. And he tells her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. The promise was made that the son of this lowly woman would indeed sit on the throne of David. An amazing promise. He would be king of the Jews. But that's not all. Let's look together at Revelation 20. And watch as Jesus Christ does occupy that throne of David in Jerusalem. Last time we were together in Revelation, we looked at Revelation chapter 20. Uh, we looked at verses 1 through 3 and verses 7 through 10, and we considered Satan's demise. This time, let's take a look at the verses that are sandwiched in between those verses. Uh, join me in verse 4 of Revelation 20. The Bible says, And I saw thrones... And they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. These verses comment on the 1,000-year period that we often refer to simply as the millennium or the millennial reign. Consider with me this king as he sits on his gracious throne. Think about it. A thousand years of Christ on the throne. He'll sit on the throne of his father David. He will fulfill so many prophecies, including the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 that we so often refer to, where Isaiah says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And here he is. He's sitting on David's throne. But he's not only ruling Judah or even a reunited Israel. He is ruling over all. And what glory, what majesty. And before him, certainly everyone is bowing. What is the attitude that most authoritarian, totalitarian dictators have about themselves and their own majesty and where the attention ought to go? Well, we see an example of that in the book of Daniel chapter 3 with King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of the known world at his time. 
he is certainly a totalitarian dictator. He is, he's the guy in charge. And here's what Nebuchadnezzar decides to do in Daniel chapter 3. The Bible says, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent to gather together the princes, the governors, and the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the princes, the governors, and captains, and the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together onto the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then an herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations and languages, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, hark, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He says, all the attention, all the majesty, all the honor goes to me. So I'm going to make sure I have all of the government officials present. I'm going to gather everybody together. And I'm going to make this huge statue. And I'm going to make everybody bow to it. And if you don't bow, you get burned to death. That's the attitude of this dictator, this man who's at the top, the one who's on the throne. And history shows us that often... When someone gets to that position, if not every time that somebody is in a position like that, that's the attitude they adopt. That's the strategy that they have about staying on top. And part of me would expect the same thing in Revelation 20. Jesus is finally sitting on an earthly throne. And so isn't he going to demand that all of the honor and glory goes to him and that everybody else is abased? That's what we'd ex expect. It's worthy. He's worthy of that, all of that. But as we look at Revelation 20, there is an emphasis that seems a bit confusing. It seems to fly in the face of that majesty. But actually, it shows us the true beauty of this king. Because as you look at these verses, the focus is not, surprisingly, primarily on the fact that Jesus is on the throne. You read through verses 4 through 6, and that's hardly even mentioned. What do these verses talk about? Well, John says, I saw thrones. Yes, Jesus is the king of kings. Yes, he is ruling supreme. But the focus in this chapter is actually on those who are sharing in Jesus' reign. That's amazing to me. And at first, it strikes me as almost wrong. But during his earthly ministry, Jesus told the 12 apostles that they would sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Here, we see that, and it goes beyond that. The martyrs whom Jesus has avenged are also reigning with him. They lived under the tyranny of the beast, but they did not receive his mark. They stayed faithful and true to the Lord. And here we see them joining their Savior also on thrones, judging and ruling with him. 
those who were looked at as the lowest of the low during their lifetime now share the greatest privilege, judging with their Savior. I just love the joy of this image. And I love what it reveals about the heart of Jesus Christ. Jesus desires to share his throne. This is no Nebuchadnezzar who is saying, I'm going to get all the glory and I'm going to make sure everybody else is on their face. Yes, we certainly are on our face before God. But Jesus is saying, come and share in the joy. Come and share in the reign. Come and share in my throne. You who are faithful unto death, you're going to join me in this kingdom. You're going to join me in overseeing and judging in this kingdom. This is truly a gracious throne. Back in Revelation 3.21, Jesus told the church at Laodicea, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. What a precious truth. And what a precious picture this is. This reign of grace lasts for a thousand years. Jesus reigning with his faithful servants. Then the Bible tells us that Satan's final defeat is accomplished. And after that defeat, we once again see Jesus Christ on his throne. And this time, it is a truly fearful picture. Look with me at the just throne in verses 11 through 15. The Bible says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Here we see the justice of his reign. We can see him there, the open books spread out before him. And there's a second resurrection. And this time it's not just those who resisted the beast. The rest of the dead are gathered and every man is judged according to his works. And we know that the judge's records are not lacking. There is no evidence that's missing. Each life is truly an open book before Christ on his throne. And in his holy presence, everything is made clear. Hebrews 12.29 tells us that our God is a consuming fire. A consuming fire is insatiable. It ruthlessly devours whatever is flammable that is in its way, and it leaves things changed. And as we think about standing in his presence on that day, I believe that it shows us what that verse really means when it says that our God is a consuming fire. 
things are clarified. Things are purified. All of the glittering vanity of this world is reduced to ash. We can experience this to some degree even here on earth. As we draw close to God, he helps us to see what really matters and what doesn't. He helps us to see the emptiness of so much of what is in this world. But when we come face to face with God, his presence will be a consuming fire. Devouring all that doesn't matter. Purifying all that is true. And the word of God speaks about the day that believers will stand before God and his very presence will purify our works. But think about the unregenerate here standing before God. And all of a sudden it's crystal clear their utter depravity. And the scripture tells us that they try to run from his presence and there's nowhere to hide. But God's presence shows them to be the sinners that they truly are. And I believe that not a single soul will go to the lake of fire with any doubt that they deserve that destination. Just one moment in God's presence and it will all become clear. No man judged according to his own works can be declared anything but guilty before God. The only way they can be declared not guilty is if they're in that one book, the book of life. The book of those who share in the eternal life of Jesus Christ. And if they're not in that book, the only way they could hope for a not guilty verdict is by their own works. And of course we understand that's an empty hope. So, the throne of Christ is a gracious throne. We also see that it's a just throne. As we continue to consider these truths in Revelation, we also see that it's an eternal throne. I, I look forward to, next time we're in the book of Revelation together, uh, taking a look at the new Jerusalem and spending some time talking about the glories there. It's one of the wonderful parts about this book of the Bible. But tonight we're just going to take one little peek at some of what happens after the one on the throne says, Behold, I make all things new. We're going to look at a few verses in Revelation 22 that refer to this wonderful eternal home of Jesus Christ and his followers. Chapter 22, verse 1, the Bible says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Before we moved to Virginia, my family lived in Seoul, Korea. And right in the middle of the city of Seoul is a mountain called Yongsan. And atop that mountain sits Seoul Tower, which is that tower you see in the picture behind me. 
It's easy to see. It's prominent and recognizable landmark, and it's a point of reference. So if you're in the city, you could say, well, you know the tower? Well, my house is so and so many blocks south and so, many, so and so many blocks east, um, except you'd say it in Korean, which I can't. <laughs> or you could say, if you get on the subway uh, you know, near the tower, at the tower, you, you'd go so many stops, and then you'd get off and, and go this direction, and then you could get to this, this shop or whatever. You could use it as a point of reference to, to point people in the right direction. They might not be quite so prominent, but every city has landmarks like that. So people in Chesapeake might say, you know Good News Baptist Church? Well, from there you would go, they might not actually do that. Um, this might not be the major landmark of Chesapeake, but you get the idea. That's how we give direction. We, we point people to a landmark they recognize, something that, that everybody knows about. What landmark will be central to the New Jerusalem? Well, it's going to be the throne. We'll say, oh, you want to go visit the Apostle John? Well, you know, you know the throne. You're going to start at the throne, and then you head down this street. And, and, and I, I love the centrality of the throne. This, these verses talk about the river of the water of life, and it flows from the throne. And as people come to the banks of the river and share in the fruit of the tree of life, they can look upstream to the glory of the throne. Everybody knows it's there. It's the major landmark of the city. It's central to everything going on there. I also love what Revelation 22 calls the throne. The throne of God and of the Lamb. One of the questions that comes to mind as we read through the book of Revelation, and we see the one who sat on the throne, is this. Is it the Father or the Son? Which one is on the throne? And I think that we find the answer right here. The answer is yes. Since his resurrection, Jesus Christ has joined his father at the throne, and it is truly a shared throne. Jesus is both the lamb that was slain and the one who sits on the throne. And as this book comes to an end, these final chapters bear that out. The throne and the king who sit on the throne are the central figure of all. For all eternity. But what will that mean? Well, Revelation 21, verse 22 tells us again, John is describing the New Jerusalem, and he says, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. There's no building for worship there, because the very presence of God serves as the temple. The king on his throne enjoys eternal worship. He's reverenced both as God and king. Jesus is truly the enthroned king. But the question for us tonight is, what is our relationship to that throne? Well, there are a few different things that could be true about our relationship to the throne and to the one who sits on the throne. 
First of all, if we are his, we can look forward to reigning with him. Revelation 5.10, we find this song of praise to the Lamb. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and hast made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. That's the song of praise of the redeemed to the Lamb. Revelation 22 verses 4 through 5 tell us that the servants of God shall see his face and his name shall be in their foreheads and they shall reign forever and ever. We can be confident, and we can rejoice, and we can look forward to the fact that we will reign with him. Yes, all the glory and all the honor and all the majesty belongs to him, but he wants to share his throne. And for all of eternity, we will be able to share the throne with him. We will be able to be judges and rulers under our king. But what if you are not his? Well, that very much changes your relationship to the throne. If you don't belong to him, then it is only right for your attitude towards the throne to be one of fear. Fear of judgment. Revelation 6.16 says, There are those who are crying out and they're saying to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. As God's judgment is coming, they're saying, I want a mountain to fall on me just to hide me from the one who's on the throne. Anything to get me away from his presence. And we saw in chapter 20 is there's the great white throne. And as they try to run and escape and there's no place to hide. That's a proper attitude for those who don't know the Lord. It's only right for them to sit in fear. But of course we see from this book that there is a way of escape from that. That's why the lamb was slain. So that instead of having to try to run from the presence of God, they could come to a gracious God. But if you don't know Christ as your Savior, then your attitude, you ought to be touched by fear tonight. Because you can rightfully anticipate judgment. But though those are both responses that we see in the book of Revelation, as we go through the book and we see the one sitting on the throne, there's one response that is overwhelming. We see it over and over and over again, and that is worship. I want to give you just a few examples tonight. In Revelation chapter 7, the word of God says in verse 9, And after this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces 
and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our God, Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and has reigned. And in Revelation 19, verse 1, And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. In these verses, he's praised for his salvation, for his power, for his truth, for his righteousness, for his judgment, for his everlasting reign. And though the words differ over and over again, and for all eternity, Christ is and will be worshipped. Go back with me to that scene in Luke chapter 1 where Gabriel appears to Mary and tells her that she is the mother of the Messiah. And he announces in verse 32, He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto the, him the throne of his father David. But then he goes on and says, And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no his is truly an eternal throne. Do you remember Henry VI, the baby king? His birth was celebrated by the English people, but his reign was far from prestigious. Unfortunately, he was shy, and he just wanted to avoid conflict, which was a problem because England was at war. He also experienced a series of mental breakdowns, and he ended up deposed from his throne, and he died imprisoned in the Tower of London. He might have begun as a celebrated baby, but his life ended in disgrace. No crown on his head, and another man seated on his throne. There have been many thrones throughout history. This is the throne of Pharaoh Tutankhamun of Egypt. This is the throne of King Charles III of Spain. This is the imperial throne of the Emperor Napoleon, the great Napoleon. Each of those thrones is empty. 
And each of them is now an historical relic. But there is a higher throne. There is an everlasting throne. And the question for us tonight is, what is my relationship to that throne? And I'm afraid that the prevailing attitude towards the throne, towards the king today, is one of indifference. Not that people are actively worshiping the king, or that they, in their minds at least, are actively opposing him. They just don't really care that there's someone on the throne. They don't really care that one day Jesus will sit on the throne of his father David. But if tonight you're indifferent, or there's apathy when it comes to thinking about Christ as the king, it's because you need to come face to face with reality. In the book of Revelation, there will be some who will cry out in fear at the presence of the one who's on the throne. There will be others who will bask in his gracious presence and enjoy worshiping him. But there will be no indifferent observers. There will be no one on the sidelines just watching. And it's foolish to think that anyone could have that attitude now in light of this truth. And I'm challenged tonight to really come to grips with this truth. We often hear him referred to as King Jesus. We understand that God is right now on his throne in heaven, overseeing all that goes on. He is ruling. One day Jesus will come and he will physically rule here on the earth and his reign will last not just for a thousand years but for all eternity. And we know these truths. But how is that changing my life today? How often does that cause me to come before him in the kind of worship that we see here in the book of Revelation? I want to encourage you this week to read chapter 4 of the book of Revelation. As we went through this study, we, we kind of skipped over it. We, we spent a little bit of time there, but as you look at the book of Revelation, as you look at chapter 4, John enters the throne room, and he sees God on his throne. And I want to encourage you to take the time to read that chapter, to read John's description, to consider God on his throne, to read those songs of praise that rise from the lips of those who are present. And to ask God to help you have that heart, to help you truly worship your king. And as you come across those who are indifferent observers, that God would help you to bring them face to face with the fact that God is on his throne and one day... Without Christ, they will stand before him, and there will be no place to hide. He is truly worthy of our everlasting worship and of our service. And I hope that you can rejoice tonight, looking forward to a time when we'll reign with him. 
looking forward to a time when from pure hearts, truly pure hearts, we'll be able to worship him for all eternity. And may we be prepared for that day and help others be prepared as well. There is a higher throne. There is an everlasting throne. There is a king of kings and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Let's pray and then I'll ask pastor if you would come. Father, we thank you for these truths we've considered tonight. Thank you for the reality that right now you are on the throne. It gives us so much comfort to recognize your control, to recognize that there is nothing that escapes your gaze, there's nothing that escapes uh, your, your hand, there's nothing that happens that is uh, outside of your control. We thank you for that. Thank you for this truth that we can consider tonight of the everlasting reign of Christ. And it is precious to think of those thousand years, but it's even more precious to think of eternity in the new Jerusalem, where the throne will be the center and all that is good will flow from you and will worship and serve you for all of eternity. Father, help us to rejoice. Help us truly to be able to look forward with expectant hearts, with joy, and help us worship you today. Help us worship you each day. And Father, I pray for those around us who are indifferent to you. Would you use us to bring them face to face with the consuming fire that is your presence? Father, help us be faithful. We look forward to a day when sin will no longer be present, when we can truly be completely faithful servants. But Father, help us to be faithful and to walk with you today. And each day, help us worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Toward the hope of our high calling, toward the promise we've received. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757 488 We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and God's word has had an impact on your life, as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.